This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Um, thank you for being here for this first in a series of talks to go with the Ramses exhibition. My name is Caroline Baum. I would like to acknowledge that we are, of course, on Gadigal country. I would also like to extend a special welcome to members of the Egyptian community who are with us today, and also to the editor of the Luxor Times, who is with us today. So welcome. I hope you are enjoying your visit. Um, now, I'm particularly in excited to be interviewing Melanie Pitkin because to me she represents the new generation of Egyptologists who are blowing some of the remaining dust from <laughs> this topic by bringing a whole new perspective to it. But I thought, Melanie, perhaps you could um, just give us a sort of sense of your career thus far because Melanie has wanted to be an Egyptologist since she was 12. Oh, no, before then. Oh, even yeah, before yeah. that. Sorry, I thought you said 12 to me. And she is now the head of the Antiquities Collection at the Chowchak Museum, the uh, fabulous Nicholson Collection at the Chowchak Museum. Um, so perhaps you can just tell us what the route to where you are now was, how you got there. So I think Egypt's always been a calling for me. Um, there was never a defining moment where I realised this is it. It's just I've always been drawn to it. So when I was at school, all my assignments incorporated Egypt in some capacity. Um, I had really great um, high school teachers and they were encouraging me to pursue it beyond that, even though I knew I was already going to do that. Um, and it's a lifetime of study and it never stops. So I did an undergraduate degree in ancient history at Macquarie University. I went to Sydney University to do a Master's in Museum Studies um, and then I went on to do my PhD at Macquarie in Egyptology. Um, but because it's such a competitive field, I made sure that I was employable, so I worked at the same time that I did all my studies. Um, so I did my PhD part-time while working in museums. Um, and I started at the Powerhouse Museum uh, as a volunteer when I was 17. Um, it's a quite unusual at that age to know exactly the career path you want to follow yeah. and to stick to it. Um, I'm a bit of a freak in that sense. <laughs> um, and yeah, so after oh, I've, I started at the Powerhouse working in fashion and design um, and at the same time doing my studies, going to Egypt whenever I could, um, taking tours there, going for field work, um, teaching over there. And then the stars aligned because when I submitted my PhD, uh, well, just before that, the Powerhouse Museum took the British Museum Travelling Exhibition, Egyptian Mummies Exploring Ancient Lives. So I was a natural fit for that show. And um, I, then I went on to go and do a postdoc at Cambridge University at the Fitzwilliam Museum, where I was for four years. And then um, fortuitously, the role came up at the Chow Chak Wing Museum just as the new museum opened. Um, so I came back at the right time, and I've been there since February last year. Fabulous. Well, talking of new museums, of course, we're all in eager anticipation of GEM, the grand um, uh, Egyptian museum, which is now slated to open, we believe, sometime in the middle of 2024, um, and which will be, I think, the largest archaeological museum on the planet at a cost of some $1 billion. So um, I bet you're itching to go and see it. I'm on standby to get on that plane. <laughs> <laughs> now, I should just say as a warning um, that we will be showing some images of human remains. 
during this talk, and that's something that we will come back to discussing the ethics of, which is of an area of particular interest to Melanie in a moment. But um, I thought let's let's start with the hero image, or one of the hero images mm. of the exhibition, um, because I believe that this is one of the most valuable pieces in the exhibition. And I was wondering whether you could start by telling us it's not Ramses, so who not is Ramses. it? So I'm guessing you're all familiar with this image because when you walk down College Street, the hero image of this exhibition is this mask. Um, it's the gilded mask of a king. I'm going to... Well, I think a lot of people might assume this is Ramses. Yes? No? It's not, yes. right? It's Amenemope, who was a king in the 21st dynasty, so the third intermediate period. And I guess as a curator and an Egyptologist, sorry for my hand over the microphone there, um, I'm very interested in the narrative that's constructed around Egypt, both ancient and also modern, and what the public takes away. Um, and of course, what we're seeing here is a very small percentage of what ancient Egypt was. This is the elite, um, the people that could afford gold. Um, you know, this mask that's placed on top of a wooden coffin belongs to someone that lived 200 years after Ramses II. And if you look at the title of the exhibition, it's Ramses and the gold of the pharaohs. So when you go back in the show, or if you reflect on what you've already seen there, there's actually about 50% that represents the New Kingdom period, and a bit less than that that represents the time of the Ramesside period, because there was not just one Ramses the Great, there are 11 kings called Ramses. So just think about that. And also in terms of um, the gold of the pharaohs, there's material culture in the exhibition from the Middle Kingdom, a lot of the jewelry from Dasher, and also later on, like Amenemope from the third intermediate period. So you're actually seeing a lot more of the spectrum of ancient Egypt than the publicity, I guess, which would um, indicate it's mainly Ramses II. Okay, we'll come back to that because I know you've got a very useful timeline and, and I do find these periods very, very confusing and very hard to distinguish between. But I just want to stay with the bling for a moment, if we can, uh, because this is such a bewitching and charismatic piece. And I just want you to tell me a little bit about gold for the Egyptians, for the ancient Egyptians. It was plentiful. They had it in abundance. When I first looked at this, I thought that this was beaten gold, but it is gold applied to wood. Yes, that's right. So, um, can you just talk about the use of gold and also this stylized look of the young pharaoh king that we see, whether it's Tutankhamun or anybody else, these very stylized eyes and eyebrows, is there a kind of interchangeable stylized look or can you, can you tell by looking at one of these masks who it is? So first of all, the significance of gold is that it represented the skin of the gods and every king was the representation of the god on earth, the god Horus, the living king. And gold was very um, abundant in ancient Egypt, it was still very valued. Um, and it could be mined from the Sinai, from the Eastern Desert, and also from Nubia in the south. And Nubia actually gets its name from Nebu, which is the ancient Egyptian word for gold. Oh. So silver was considered to be much more valuable than gold. And actually a colleague of mine, um, Karen Sawada at Macquarie University, has um, been uh, studying the um, silver bracelets of a queen called Heteferis from the Old Kingdom. And it shows that from that time period and also later, silver was coming from Greece and for, it was being mined over in Greece and then imported into Egypt. So there's actually a silver coffin um, in the exhibition from mm. the Third Intermediate Period. So um, that actually has a higher value than, than gold. 
And there and are a couple of silver vessels as well, beautiful beaten silver vessels. So it's interesting for our perspective to think of those as being more valuable than the, the gold vessel that might be next to them. But to also remember that that material was recycled. So we know that from the Valley of the Kings, um, that a lot of the material culture from there was robbed in antiquity. Um, and this is another topic altogether, but state-sanctioned robbing that happened, and then they melted down the materials to reuse them into other precious um, items. When you say state-sanctioned, I know you've got a talk coming up later on in this series about recycling and reuse, which I think is a fantastic topic. But when you say state-sanctioned, what does that actually mean? I should say that was, that's one um, of the leading theories around this, because there's papyri from the time period called the Tomb Robbery Papyri that actually talks about the high priests of Amun who were involved in organising the removal of a lot of these um, the coffins and the burial goods to a cache in Daryl Bahari. So because it was so organised at the time, and you'll see even on Ramses II's coffin, there's dockets written in the hieratic, which talks about the contents so they could keep track of who was going where, um, that we think it was to help support the economy at the time. Wow, so let's just go back to the makeup for a moment. This eyeliner and the eyebrows, what, what makes um, these masks distinctive, or are they generic in a sense? So I guess it's idealised. Right. The idea is that you are identifying yourself as a god on earth and an immortal being, and you've got like the urais, which is unfortunately cropped here, to identify yourself as a king. But you want it to be shown at the height of your health and fitness so that you would be that eternal being in the afterlife. Mm. Okay. And the black represents the kohol, which is still used very commonly in cosmetics today in, in Egypt. Um, it had therapeutic, medicinal properties to help um, what the sun, the glare in Egypt is one aspect of help reduce, reducing glare, um, but also flies and insects as well. It's supposed to have a slightly antiseptic quality. It's supposed right. to reduce infection. Yeah, so that actually place it inside on, on the lid itself. And um, so when, when you look at this mask, and, and you talk about this kind of idealised look and the period of time that we're talking about in the timeline. Does this look evolve? Does it change over time? Or does it stay pretty well like that for the whole of the ancient Egyptian period? So there is a sense of continuity in the appearance, definitely. But there's also a lot of diversity in art as well. And I guess, is art the right word to be using anyway? Because art in ancient Egypt was functional. It served mm. a purpose. It was meant to come to life. Um, they didn't have perspective, for example. You don't find in the round. It's all very representational. And the idea is that it would activate, come to life, and actually help to fulfil a function. And I'd, I'd just like to explore a little bit about the afterlife and the concept of the afterlife. Um, it had very, very elaborate rituals, obviously. But um, where does the concept of the afterlife begin? Can we, can we isolate that? So I guess death was a hurdle to be overcome. So death wasn't an ending. That was the point in which eternity would happen. But there's a big project that I've been working on looking at the production of coffins in ancient Egypt where we can see that they've actually... So we CT scan coffins and lots of different pieces of wood went into making the coffins and we've actually found a lot of evidence for breaking up older coffins into making new coffins. So that brings up lots of questions now about what our understanding actually is of the afterlife and what it means to live forever because when is it appropriate 
to break up someone else's coffin to make your own? And how long does it take to become an eternal being? So this is a very active area of research that we're still trying to understand now. And there are a lot of incompatible beliefs that the Egyptians had. So everyone at any strata of society believed in an eternal life. But at the same time, they knew that robbery was happening. That their own tombs could be desecrated by the very people that helped to bury them. So, for example, could you, could you arrive at the afterlife and then someone might steal some part of you or some part of your ritualised death and bring you out of the afterlife to some sort of purgatory or no man's land? I guess going back a step, so um, you, you've probably all heard of the weighing of the heart scene. This yeah. is kind of the judgment stage and it would be the heart of the deceased being weighed against the feather of Mart. And Mart was the representation of universal order. So if your heart and um, the feather of Mart was equal in the scales, then you'd be welcomed into the afterlife for an eternal, you know, that's what everyone wanted. And what everyone feared was to be devoured by the god Amut and to be banished to non-existence. So we spoke earlier about the concept of heaven and hell. They didn't have a concept of hell like we understand in Christianity, but they were afraid of disappearing. So us talking about them today is obviously something that's, you know, we're enduring them through talking mm -hmm. about the ancient Egyptians. But at the same time, um, in terms of uh, burials being desecrated, um, displaying funerary goods, displaying mummified bodies, is that actually what they wanted? So this is something that becomes that ethical conundrum that we're faced with, particularly as curators today. Wow, it's fascinating. And isn't there also some work that you've done, Melanie, on a particular door, a Stella, where you've examined the idea that the afterlife, there is some degree of fluidity to it, that you kind of would come and go? Yes, yeah, so um, my PhD looked at um, false doors and stelae, which are like gravestones today. Um, but the idea is that they'd be placed inside a tomb chapel and then priests and family members would come and leave offerings and recite the name and the achievements of the deceased. And then it's like this magical portal. So the deceased would, or his, his car, his life force, would travel between the afterlife through this door or stealer into the tomb to collect the food and drink offerings to help sustain him and nourish him for eternity. Okay. Well, I think having said all of that, it's time for us to look at the timeline because that's <laughs> going to make things a lot clearer. So um, we've got this graphic now. Would you like to sort of walk us through it and tell us about the, the way it's organised and who came up with this system of categorization. Yeah, so I guess when we talk about pharaonic history, we're talking about 3,000 years of Egyptian history from the time of King Nama, or Menes, in around 3,100 BC, right up until the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC, at which time Egypt became part of the Roman Empire. And um, we talk about dynasties a lot, so there's 30 dynasties that we talk about as Egyptologists. And um, this is actually introduced by an Egyptian priest called Manetho, who wrote a history of Egypt in Greek in the third century BC called Egyptiarca. And those 30 dynasties have kind of stuck. So when Jean-Francois Champollion um, deciphered the Rosetta Stone, he also developed um, a system of cartouches for all the kings from the first dynasty to the 30th dynasty, which followed, of course, Manetho's timeline. But what's problematic about that is that Manetho exists in copies and copies of copies. There's no original document of Manetho. And then those copies actually contradict each other. So then modern Egyptology comes about after the time of Napoleon in the late 18th century. 
um, really from the time of Jean-François Champouli on it, it really starts to evolve. Um, and scholars, particularly French and German ones, started to use their language to, um, I guess, categorise or compartmentalise these dynasties. Mm. So in mid-1850s, um, there's a German scholar called Bunsen who introduced sort of old empire, middle empire and new empire. And then how does that translate into English? We've gone with these old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. And then as you'll see at the top, we've got these intermediate periods, which um, are actually quite a recent um, like label for the, these time periods. Um, so my specialty is the first intermediate period. And um, this is when we have collapses in central kingship. So there's a division of rule. Um, some call it dark ages, periods of decline. Um, but if you look at the archaeology, the evidence is quite different. So um, I guess looking at the first intermediate period, it's very much a product of scholars working in a particular time period in terms of how they've interpreted what happened. So in like the 1920s, um, it's the aftermath of the First World War. And scholars at that time really projected their own experiences um, and also the Spanish flu pandemic onto what they are interpreting with the evidence. So scholars like myself are now going back to this evidence, um, looking at the historiography and, and trying to re-examine it in a different light. Wow, that's fascinating. So I couldn't help but think that the old and you know Middle Kingdom, these things sound quite hobbity to me. It sounds like we're <laughs> in the sort of Lord of the Rings. But when you say the intermediate periods are sort of like Dark Ages, so does that mean that there's been a kind of collapse in the in the um, system of ruling? That's or has right. there been a weak ruler? I mean, when you talk about these intermediate periods as Dark Ages, what exactly has happened politically? So I guess um, Mart is overthrown, or, or there's disorder. That, that, that Mart represents having one king rule of, ruling over a unified Egypt. In the first intermediate period, and also in the second and third, you find this division of rule. So in the north of the country, there were the Heracleopolitans, and in the south there were um, rulers from a local family in Thebes. And they're competing, and it actually gives more power to like, provincial officials. So the art style starts to change, there's more diversity and experimentation, and um, there's actually very little in the way of a royal record at this time. Third intermediate period is quite different, though. You've got the rulers in Tarnas in the north, and then you've got the high priests um, from, uh, of Amun in, in the south in Thebes. Um, but they, they're traditionally not supposed to become rulers of the country in any capacity. But their power started to improve as decentralisation happened. And where does Ramses II fit in in terms of this, um, you said to me before that there are 11 Ramses. So how does number two compare with all the <laughs> others in terms of his enlightenment, um, progress, wars, stability? What's, what's the kind of score sheet for Ramses II? So now you know a bit about dynasties. Um, so the New Kingdom is the 18th, 19th and 20th dynasties. Dynasty 19 is where you have Ramses I and II with some other kings in there as well, like Seti. And then the other Ramses from the 3rd to the 11th fall within the 20th dynasty. But everyone after Ramses II wanted to keep being called Ramses because he was such a great ruler. Um, he knew how to be remembered. Um, he did lots of big things, great stuff, built um, big temples at Abu Simbel, the Ramesseum. He usurped lots of monuments and had his name inscribed all across the country. Um, he built a new city and capital at Paramses in the Delta. Um, he went and conquered or, or the peace treaty of Kadesh. You know, he knew how to um, monumentalise everything that he was doing and, and be remembered. And people wanted to keep on in those footsteps. And um, 
it's part of legitimising rule as well, looking to those that came before you that did it really well. So um, that's not new, that happened a lot earlier in Egyptian history as well. But is, is part of his success simply that, you know, he defied the age expectancy for ancient Egypt, the average life expectancy was 40. He lived to be 98, which is absolutely staggering. I want to know what his DNA was <laughs> and I want to know what he ate. Um, so he was able to execute and commission work that he got to see happen in his own lifetime, which most rulers did not. That's an extraordinary privilege and asset that he had. And outlived a lot of his children as yes. well. He had a hundred children. So he's not the first king or anybody to live that long. So Pepi II at the end of the Old Kingdom lived for until his 90s. Um, and also Sorsenes in the Third Intermediate Period lived for a very long time. Um, and I, I kind of compare to like the Queen. I mean, she, she had a really good innings herself and mm. having the best access to food and to healthcare. And, um, you know, they're always going to be outliers. But the, the average age, as you said, was very young. Very young. What about women in, in the mix here? Uh, I, someone was saying to me the other day that women could own land in their own right. So was there some sort of system of equality between the sexes in any, at any level of society? I mean, obviously there were not women who were pharaohs, but there, there were, were queens. There were. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, Hatshepsut's a really good example. So you call Hatshepsut a pharaoh rather than a queen? So I'd actually go back a step and question our use of the word pharaoh. Okay. <laughs> so pharaoh um, comes from per'ah, which means um, the great house, and that actually refers to the palace or the, the residence of, of the ruler. So um, I prefer to use king or queen, but um, in antiquity from around the time of Akhenaten, that started to appear in some of the records, the use of um, pharaoh. Um, but I, I think, yeah, king or queen is the more appropriate term. So um, yes, women could own land. There, there was a specific title for that. Um, if you look at the representations of women in the exhibition and elsewhere, they always had sort of yellow, pale skin to represent that they were indoors most of the time and men would have red or brown skin. Unless they're rulers, like um, in royalty, that have either gold skin, like we saw before with uh, Aminamope, or skin to reflect the colour of the god Osiris, which was um, often green. Um, because every, I'm, I'm going on a tangent now, but every king or every individual wanted to be reborn like the god Osiris. Um, he was the first mythical king of Egypt and he also represented a fertility of the land. So he'd have a black face sometimes or a green face, so you'd also often see rulers being identified with him through those colours. Now, when we're, when we're talking about Ramses and women and the hundred children, obviously he had many wives. He had eight, didn't he? And was there one wife that was the sort of love of his life? Was it a, can you just explain, were those wives simultaneous? Were they sequential? So there's a whole body of research that exists around the idea of polygamy in ancient Egypt and were multiple wives at the same time or were they in succession? And there's still some discrepancies around this. Um, kings did elevate particular wives over others. So Ramses II elevated Nefertari. Um, another wife you'll hear quite a lot about is, is Iset Nofret, who was the mother of Chaim Weset. And there's some great objects in the exhibition related to him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I think it was also about thinking ahead. <laughs> a lot of women died in childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, so life expectancy was very young for women from that perspective too. So um, I, I guess succession planning was one of the, the, the driving forces there as well. But that's a bit of 
um, hypotheses. Okay, but in terms of thinking ahead then, at what stage in your life do you start thinking about your coffin and about what you might want in your tomb? Is that an end-of-life thing? Or is that something that you, you begin to consider at a particular stage in your life? The Egyptians spent their lives preparing for their death. And they put more money into um, monuments to do with their death and the afterlife than they did for the, the time they were alive. So that's why you find that houses are built of mud brick and tombs are built of stone. Because they will endure, they will last forever, but mud brick doesn't need to. But do you think, <coughs> Melanie, that that is because their lives were so short that if your average lifespan was 40, then the idea of eternity was obviously very, very comforting to you in a very particular way, in the context of the fact that you only had 40 years to live. Yeah, and I think that death was something, like it's a taboo for us, we don't really speak about mm. death very much now, um, or you know, we don't mourn openly, it's, it's a very different experience, but in Egypt you were seeing it around you all the time. And if you don't mind if I jump to a slide, yeah. um, I'll come back to these in a moment. So this is a site called Tel El Amarna in Egypt. Um, Tel Amarna was the city founded by King Akhenaten and his wife Queen Nefertiti and it only lasted for about 15 to 20 years. So Akhenaten was this heretic king who um, worshipped the god Aten above all other gods. He uprooted a whole city from Thebes, founded this new city site halfway between Thebes and the old capital of Memphis. And the reason I'm showing this to you right now is because I've been working at this site for a number of years, um, since 2012, and these are the cemeteries of the very, um, I don't want to use a value judgment of saying poor, but the, the everyday people. And these are the people that we don't speak about enough and that you don't see represented in the Ramses exhibition at all. But in terms of death and it being all pervasive, every day they were burying someone in this cemetery here. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, we call it a wadi, which is like an old watercourse between a jebel. Um, and there are about 6,000 graves all through here. All really simple pit burials. And when you say pit burial, one person per pit? No, no. not necessarily. Often um, people jumbled up together, families put together. Um, there's a whole mixture. But um, sometimes they're very shallow in the ground, other times they're very deep. It depends on kind of the geography of that part of the wadi. Um, but you know, this is the reality of what's happening because the elite that we see in the exhibition are a very small percentage of the population. Mm. This is how everyone else lived. Well, hang, died. On <laughs> hang on a minute, because these are the, uh, as you said, they're, they're the opposite end of the social scale from the pharaohs, but there is also a middle class, yes. a professional class, mm -hmm. who also had tombs that were quite ornate and elegant mm -hmm. and, and quite expensively decorated and for which they commissioned. Yes. Artifact, so it's not kind of one thing. You're either covered in gold, oh, no, or no, no. you're in a hole there's in the ground. There's definitely a middle class. So there is a middle class. Yeah, so, so tell us a little bit about the middle class. So um, the artisans, all the people that produced all this material culture that you're seeing, would have fitted into the kind of the lower elite of Egyptian society. So they still were able to build. Um, it's it's funny the the labels that we use, like to say modest. Like is this a, a judgment from today that we'd call it a modest tomb? But if you look at Senegem um, in the exhibition, the beautiful tomb from Dera Medina, which you can walk through in, in the exhibition. Some people refer to that as modest in comparison to a tomb from the Valley of the Kings, for example. But if you compare Senegem's tomb to a pit burial like this, you wouldn't say modest, right? No. It's very lavish. Um, so they could have tombs um, and beautiful coffins and sarcophagi, 
And you know, the whole production or the whole funerary industry was a big money-making process um, and a lot of skilled people involved in that as well. But so you would be having a conversation with someone about your preparations for death at any point in your life, you might go and visit a coffin maker, you might decide on the aesthetics of what you wanted on the walls of your tomb if you were a prosperous member of the middle class. And so that would be a sort of ongoing project for you. Yeah, so you could go into a, I mean, this is a little bit of um, speculation, but we, we work with the evidence and we kind of fill in some of the gaps sometimes to, to paint a picture. But we've got evidence of coffins that have, um, you know, funerary offerings and spells from the Book of the Dead, and then there's a space for the name of the owner and his titles or her titles. So you can buy it kind of off the shelf, ready to go. <laughs> or from the beginning, you can make it bespoke. You can choose exactly what types of spells from the Book of the Dead you want, um, you know, how you want to be represented. There are options as well. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Australia and Australian collecting and the Australian role in um, studying and excavating. So let's go back into the Chow Chak. Mm. Um, perhaps you'd like to introduce this image. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure how many people have been to the Chow Chak Wing Museum at the University of Sydney. I have a show of hands. Yeah, okay. A few. So after this, you'll all have to make a visit. <laughs> Um, so just to give you a bit of background, um, we have the largest collection of Egyptian antiquities in Australia, um, of around 5,000 artefacts and human and animal remains, um, but our overall antiquities and archaeology collection spans around 30,000 objects. Um, and in 2020, we opened this new museum called the Chow Chak Wing Museum, which brings the antiquities collection alongside the Maclay Collection of Natural History um, and also the art collection. So we can, we can start to tell all these new and interesting stories. Um, but we have two permanent exhibitions on display, one which looks at the history of collecting and one which looks at mummified remains and the story of mummification. Um, so Charles Nicholson, after whom our collection is named, is where the story of our collection begins. Um, he was also one of the founders of the University of Sydney. So he wanted to establish a teaching museum on par with the great universities in Oxford and Cambridge. So he travelled to Egypt um, twice in 1856-57 and again in 1862. Um, acquiring very representative pieces which he thought, um, you know, covered different time periods, different types of uh, material culture, um, and it's very selective and erudite with what he acquired for us. Um, and then the collection grew exponentially from there. We used to fund um, excavations through the Egypt Exploration Fund, now the Egypt Exploration Society, of one guinea per year. Um, which turned out to be a really great investment. <laughs> um, but there was a system of partage at the time. So um, anything that was excavated, we would receive a system of those finds or a share of those finds in return. Mm. And that's how many of the museums um, also around the world received objects at the time. Um, this doesn't happen anymore with no. Egypt. And how much would you be in competition as an institution like that with some of the private individuals that we know about? So if you think about Philip Adams or you think about Molly Meldrum, both of them really majorly invested in collecting this mm. stuff as well. Are you in direct competition with them sometimes for something? So every curator that's kind of been in this role has a different approach to collecting. Um, I'm the first Egyptologist in this role and the first female at the university, but I don't want to chase collecting for the Museum with Antiquities. Um, we have enough material to research, so my focus is more on research, but having said that, we get approached quite often from um, private collectors, like as you mentioned, not necessarily Philip Adams or Molly Meldrum, um, offering material to us, but um, there's, there's very strict regulations around what museums can acquire. 
Um, and there's a, an act, the UNESCO Convention of 1970, on the import um, and export of cultural property. And that's kind of our benchmark. So we have to make sure that anything we acquire has a full legal ownership chain um, from 1970 onwards, although Egypt actually signed the convention in 1973, so technically that is the date for Egypt. Um, so it's a case by case for, for different countries. Um, so since I started beginning last year, we have acquired a few pieces from uh, local collectors in Sydney, for example, who have been very stringent about making sure they have that paperwork chain. Um, someone like Molly or, or Philip Adams have never approached us while I've been there. Um, but of course, there are, there are conflicts of interest. Auction um, houses are always selling antiquities, and we tend to try to keep across what's happening. Um, but also, there's a whole new um, body of kind of museum work happening now around tracing um, you know, illicit material that's still coming out of Egypt and still entering collections. And you might have seen some of the press around the Metropolitan Museum of Art where that's happened recently, and they're now appointing someone specifically to do provenance research for them which is a bit of a joke because every museum should be doing that anyway. <laughs> they should, but I, I wanted to ask you whether the, the workmanship and the kind of objects that came out of ancient Egypt are particularly susceptible to being easily forged and faked because there uh, must be an absolute mass of this stuff out there. Yeah, there's still markets where this is happening, that's for sure, and um, obviously there are touristic pieces being made all the time, and, and you know, we even have pieces in our collection that soldiers would acquire thinking that they were genuine, and at the time they were acquired by our collection and we have them there, right? And that's a teaching mm -hmm. um, opportunity now. So, yeah, it's, it's problematic. It's ongoing, yeah. it's <laughs> ongoing. It's a live kind of situation, isn't mm -hmm. it, really? And with Ramses II, do we have more things from his reign and his time because his reign and his time were so long? Or how, you know, how does the uh, number of objects that we have from this particular pharaoh compare with others? Are there pharaohs for whom we have almost nothing? And if so, why oh, not? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, my time period, the first intermediate period, there's next to nothing that we have from those right. kings, and they're still excavating um, at sites such as Inazia el Medina, which is where the um, capital city was for the Heracleopolitans. Um, we have some cartouches and um, reference to them, but nothing like the grandiose material that you see from Ramses, for example. Right. So there are, there are sort of periods which are almost blank in your, in your canvas. Yeah, but also in, in, term, in terms of untouched um, burials from like the Valley of the Kings, for example, there's Tutankhamun. Um, there are some non-royals, there's Kha and Merit, but there are very, very few examples that have made it through which haven't been untouched. And that's mainly from, as I mentioned before, disturbance in antiquity. Right. And subsequent layers of pillaging, and grave robbing, etc. Right. So actually in our museum, sorry, I go forward to the mummy room. So um, this coffin here belongs to a woman called Menethetes. And um, in the last kind of five to seven years, um, they realised that there were human remains still inside the coffin, which hadn't, you know, somehow had gone missed before. Um, but all of the remains were jumbled up, so disturbed in antiquity, most probably. And then during the process of transporting the coffin with its um, interment to Australia, so thinking about that process too, it's very interesting. It would have to have gone by a donkey, presumably, um, from Saqqara to a port, by ship over to London, to Southampton, and over to Australia. We think it was upside down on its head for that whole journey because all the remains are up one end, or down one end. 
so there's, there's, a, there's many histories and, and biographies to tell about objects that um, we often don't think about, right? But also you have a very particular interest and I do regard this as a kind of new generation or a, a whole new sort of level of investigation and philosophy around the morals, the ethics of displaying human remains and even around the use of the word mummy. So mm -hmm. when I was initially talking to Melanie on the phone, she said to me, you know, the word mummy, we're, we're, not, we're not so keen on that anymore. And I was thinking, oh my God, why not? I grew up with that word. And I looked up the origins of the word and it is the Arabic word mumia, uh, which I think means embalmed body or body in wax. Bitumen. So bitumen, yes, bitumen. But then I thought bitumen to me is tar and I didn't yeah. understand that at all. Anyway, what <laughs> is wrong with the word mummy? I don't want to get too politically correct or anything like that, right? <laughs> I'm still open-minded, but I'll give a bit of the background first. So I've been involved in these discussions for quite a long time around the ethics of displaying human remains, particularly from ancient Egypt. And um, when I came to the museum last year, I was actually really surprised that a whole, a, a brand new museum curated an exhibition that had, and you don't see it here, um, a display of body parts. And it's quite gruesome. So there uh, is a pair of toddler's legs, um, there's a head, and when I started they said to me that they had curated the display in line with ICOM's code of ethics. So ICOM is the international body governing museums internationally called the International Council of Museums and they have a document called um, the Code of Ethics that all museums kind of look to to making you know, tricky decisions. Um, and it's actually a very vague document. So in relation to human remains, it doesn't specify the cultural origins of the remains. And the wording is like, as long as you're respectful and do it in a dignified manner. So museums around the world have very different approaches to displaying human remains because they interpret it the way that they want to. Mm. And when it comes to consultation, yes, surveys have happened with visitors to the museums. Um, and we also did one last year, but the repeated response that we get from that is that people are okay with it. But that's also because they're used to seeing it and mm. it's, it's become a, something to be expected. It's a normalised experience for them. And that goes all the way back to the British Museum in the 1830s when they first displayed their mummified bodies in the museum. And there are newspaper reports from the time saying it's the most crowded exhibition um, in the museum. So I think from that time on onwards, museums have played a really critical role in shaping people's expectations around what to see. And, and um, I guess the, the other way of looking at it is that, yes, this is for everyone, like who should we be privileging with this material as well? Like if we were to have it in storage, that's also, like is that an ethical thing to do? Mm. So the project I've been leading is trying to be as holistic as possible. So not only working with um, visitors to the museum, but working with Egyptian descent communities. Um, they're often overlooked in terms of the discussion around their dispersed heritage. And that goes all the way back to the origins of Egyptology as a very colonial discipline. Um, so I guess what the, I mean, the direction that I'm taking things in is not to be so prescriptive and not for us as curators to tell people what they should be seeing, what they shouldn't be seeing, but to get them to think about the space that they're in, why we've chosen to display human remains. It's a very organic um, debate. It's shifting all the time, so we have to be receptive to that as well. Um, so I'm hoping that when people enter our exhibition from next year onwards, when we're going to start to make some changes, um, that it'll get them to reflect on their behaviour in the space, um, that they are in the presence of human remains, because I've done a lot of observation in that space as well, and 
you know, people lean on the cases sometimes, um, people will take photographs or selfies, um, they'll talk in raised voices, and I'm not saying that is inappropriate because who am I to necessarily judge that, but it's to get us to all reflect on, yeah, who we are in the presence of. Mm. So, tell me about the survey that you've done with Egyptians today about how they feel about these issues, because I think that's really fascinating. Mm. So um, we've, we did some focus groups last year with about 17 um, representatives yeah. of the Egyptian community in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide. Um, there's an online media platform called Egyptian Streets, so we've been writing some conversation pieces with the Egyptian community, um, sort of fielding some of the topics more broadly, because one of the key findings that we've made is that Egyptians in the diaspora, particularly in Australia, have quite different views to those in Egypt mm. and also elsewhere. So I'm, I'm going to simplify things a bit just for the sake of this conversation, but Egyptians in Egypt have a much more emotional reaction about material culture having been taken from them and mm. having lack of control. Whereas, um, just again to put it quite simply, Egyptians in the diaspora um, feel connected to their heritage through seeing their dispersed heritage in museums and it gives them a sense of pride. But mm. What I'm trying to do, and I've got some of the wonderful Egyptians that I've been working with in the audience today, um, is to try and navigate this space and also show that um, there's more continuity between Egypt today and Egypt's ancient past than what any museum acknowledges um, in terms of the language, in terms of um, food and festivals and mm -hmm. mourning rites. There are, there are lots of origins that go all the way back to ancient Egypt and I guess one of the other key findings that have come out of our research is that in, in modern culture today, we tend to revere ancient Egypt, mm -hmm. but Arabs today are very stereotyped and not looked upon in the same way. Mm -hmm. So how can we reconcile this? That is, yeah, that's a very, very powerful area to investigate and discuss and, and requires a great deal of sensitivity, I would have thought. Can we extract DNA from mummified remains? We can. I would not do that. That's not. That's against my practice as a curator because Why? it's invasive. Okay. It's invasive. Okay. I, I need to ask you if it's okay. It's invasive, but if it would unlock some major secrets and breakthroughs and connections with people who are descendants who are alive today. So I think new technologies are already allowing us to do that. So we've been CT scanning, CT scanning's evolving all the time. That's a non-invasive way of finding out more. Um, and not just for human remains, but like coffins, as I said, and X-radiography. And we work with Sydney Analytical, which is um, a resource at Sydney University that does vibrational spectroscopy, so you can analyze the pigments. And all of this is, um, it's not going to damage the object. So there are other ways of finding out um, information that doesn't need to go down the path of DNA. And I guess it's also case by case. So what is the research question? What are we trying to answer? And, and look at other ways of trying to get there first rather than going straight down the path of let's pull off a toe. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I understand that. <laughs> Have you been able to make links to people who are direct descendants, other direct descendants of anybody from that world? 
So I get asked this a lot, and I don't think it's my place to even answer that question. So I would put it to Egyptians today, and how do they identify themselves in relation to their ancient past? And it's like, it's a, it's a personal thing too. And if someone asks me, am I, because my dad's British, for example, am I more British or am I more Australian? I, I grew up watching Carry On films, which if anyone knows, <laughs> yeah, it's I not a too. normal thing to, to grow up watching. <laughs> but um, I don't question that. If someone likes to identify themselves in relation to their Egyptian um, past, then it's not for me to judge. Okay, let's go back to the coffins. I don't know whether the coffins are less contentious, but let's talk for a, a few <laughs> remaining moments about coffins. Um, why have they retained their colours? Are they, are they treated in a particular way? Are they waxed in a particular way that protects the pigments? Um, and do the colours have certain significances? So you talked before about the meaning of gold, obviously, and, um, and we also see many of the figures on coffins have black, black skin, black faces, black mm. bodies. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about colours and, and what they represent? Okay, there are a lot of questions there, so let's work <laughs> back from the colours. Um, and I'll give an example that's on the screen to help make it a bit more understandable. So this is a 21st Dynasty coffin belonging to a woman called Marua. And it's actually quite easy to date her just based on the colour. Um, it belongs to a particular type called a yellow coffin. So when you go into the Ramses exhibition downstairs, just before you enter the space where it actually has Ramses II's coffin, you'll see an example. And the pigment used here is called orpiment. And orpiment's actually an arsenic-based sulphide mineral. It's toxic. It can kill you, right? <laughs> so we actually don't know if the Egyptians were aware of that mm. um, because, as we said before, life expectancy was young anyway. Mm. Um, so they, weren't, they didn't live long enough to find out if that's what, you know, <laughs> was their fate. Um, but in antiquity, this would have been a really bright lemon yellow colour. And over time, orpiment becomes this kind of orangey colour. But the yellow is significant for the association with the solar aspect. So the Egyptians were very much aware of the natural world around them and um, to explain, like, I guess the sun would rise every day and then it would disappear when it sets. And they wondered, where did it go? <laughs> so the solar image appears a lot in terms of the Egyptians wanting to be reborn every day like the sun was. Um, so that's why you have gods like Amun, for example, and Ra, shown with a big sun disk on their heads. Um, green was a very important colour in terms of fertility and rejuvenation. And if we think about the geography and the landscape of ancient Egypt, about 3 to 5% is fertile all along the Nile, which um, Herodotus called the lifeblood of Egypt, and the rest of it is desert. And I guess the Egyptians also worked on this basis of dualities. Um, and in ancient Egypt, it was called Kemet, Today in Arabic we call it Masr, but Kemet means the black land, the fertile land. So that, that colouring reflects that meaning as well. And Deshret, the red land, represents the desert, which is the rest of Egypt. And then you'd find gods like Seth, who was kind of um, a slightly more feared god, who would be the god representative of the desert, which is the unknown land. Um, so in terms of pigment production, green was an artificial pigment made using um, malachite um, and also Egyptian blue. So they were the first to develop um, their own artificially made pigments. Um, the yellow ochres also on there and red were just naturally derived. And so then were they, were they covered in some sort of preservative like a wax to stabilise them? So um, they used pistachio resin from the pistachio nut tree to produce the varnish, which they um, coated the coffins with at this time. 
Um, but in terms of how come it's well, so well preserved, um, it's also because of the, the climate in Egypt. It's so hot and dry. So that's why we can thank um, Egypt's landscape and conditions for having preserved so much for so long. That's interesting because I, I wondered whether, you know, in, in say the Renaissance, we've, we've tended in some people's eyes to over restore the vibrancy of certain colours. I remember when the Sistine Chapel was first redone, people complained and said it looked like an ad for United Colours of Benetton and that it was just a ridiculous <laughs> thing. So um, have we been guilty of the same thing? Have we over-restored a lot of material from ancient Egypt? I'm going to look at Rami in the audience. I'm not going to dob him in here, but he's a conservator from the Grand Egyptian Museum. And um, there are definitely cases of over-restoration happening and there are some very famous objects from Egypt where um, you might have read about it in the media where this has happened. Um, I think practices have changed in conservation work over time as well, but it's more about consolidation and preservation rather than restoration. And when we were talking before about the craftsmen and the artisanal class that was very gainfully employed on a massive scale to make all the artefacts that go with death, including coffins, were these people highly valued socially? Did they have status? Or was this regarded as a, a lowly occupation? No, no, no. They, they belonged to the low elite. They were very well respected. And as we know with Senegium, for example, they had their own tombs and they, they knew the best people to produce, you know, material culture for them. So, um, you know, if, if I just show you this example of Marua, <clears throat> just to give you a sense of what is involved in producing a coffin, um, it's very hard to quantify how long it took, but I can give you a sense. So first of all, a coffin like this is made of wood. Think about wood in ancient, or in Egypt generally, right? There aren't that many trees. So wood was highly valued. Um, there were species like um, Ficus sycamorus and tamarisk and cedar, which was natural to Egypt. Um, so you could source it locally or you'd import it from Lebanon with Lebanese cedar. And how would you actually carve the coffin shape? So you could hollow out a log, for example, or from CT scanning, we can find out that they patched lots of different pieces of wood together from different wooden objects to then make it look like this luxury object. Oh. So there's, I don't have the image here, but you can actually see a lot of paste, um, many mortise and tenon joints and dowels, linking everything together, right? It's a bit of a jumbled mess under there, to be honest. <laughs> and then on top of that, you'd have a, a layer of linen with calcite paste on top for your preparation layers. And then after that, they'd apply, well, the ornament would be next, so the base paint, and then they'd do one pigment at a time. The outline would be in red, and then they'd build it up slowly. They'd fill in details in red, they'd do blue, they'd do green, they'd do black, um, and then after that, they'd apply the, the pistachio resin varnish. So there's 10 layers in doing that. Right. And then, so in, in the project I've been working on, we've been collaborating with an expert in historical painting techniques, with a specialist in ancient Egyptian carpentry, um, a pigment specialist to try and kind of work out all the different facets in the process of production. And um, Jeff Killen, who is the carpentry specialist, um, made a set of um, tools. He recreated them based on originals that we have um, from like Daryl Medina. And just to make one mortise hole, like that. So a mortise hole receives the tenon joint that comes from the lid. So under here, there'd be tenon joints. Um, and it's about this deep. It took him four hours to chisel that out and he had to sharpen the chisel every 20 minutes. Oh. 
So it's really hard to work out how long the whole coffin would have taken to make. Or how many people. It and would how have many taken. people. So that's another yeah. aspect. You can try and establish different scribal hands, um, different nuances in the way the paint has been applied, the orientation of the coffin. So that's another topic altogether, but that's um, a big project I've been involved in, and then applying this to other types of objects like stele. Because traditionally, Egyptologists are only interested in what it says and what's depicted. But behind that, right, where's the stone coming from? Where's it being quarried? How are they transporting mm -hmm. the stone? Are they fashioning the stone on site? What tools are they using? Are they doing it in a workshop somewhere? How many people are working on it? Um, are they lying the object down? Is it upright? There's just so much to think about. And um, it really helps to change your perspective and appreciation of an object because going back again to the first intermediate period, as I said, there's decentralization at this time and there's a lot of experimentation in art styles. Um, and when you look at the literature around this, they will say that it's an inferior art style. But when then you go back to looking at what's involved in making it and you know we worked with a stonemason to look at the way that they've used the chisel and there are no blowouts like the overall piece might seem a little bit clunky but um i don't know if anyone here's worked in stone before but i've done a little bit now with my experimental work and it's a really fine job and if you make any blowout you've got to start all over again <laughs> It's mind-boggling. Everything you're saying is just mind-boggling. I think that if I were here and I were 12, I would decide right now that I wanted to be an Egyptologist. We've got about um, seven or eight minutes left, and I just get a sense that there might be some questions in the audience. So if you've got a question for Melanie, there is nothing that she cannot tell you. Oh, I don't yes. know about that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, probably not. Oh, thank yeah. you for asking that. So that was, for those of you that may not have heard at the back, that was about um, the use of the word mummy and whether there is a sensitivity around that as opposed to the actual business of the displaying and the treatment of human remains. Thank you for reminding me because uh, my train of thought is going everywhere right now. So just to go back to the origins of the word, it comes from mamoya, which actually translates the bitumen. And it's a, it's a colonial interpretation at the time of what they thought the body looked like coated in all the different resins. And that word has stuck and has been carried on through popular culture, as you know. But <clears throat> when it go, if you go back to the Egyptian written record, there was no word for mummy. There was a word for the living, the, the body, chet, which could be living or dead. And there was a word for the transformed body, which was sah. So that meant you, were, you became an eternal being. So any body in a coffin that has passed the judgment becomes a sah but it doesn't actually refer to the physical process of mummifying a body. So it's a bit pedantic, but at the same time, I think it's important people understand the origins. Um, so coming out of the UK now, there's been a whole move around, if we say mummy, we should say it as a mummified person or mummified human being, because it's also become objectified. And museums have also perpetuated that. If you look at the way human remains are, well, not, we're not collected now, but are, um, organised in museum collections, they form part of world collections, and even at the Australian Museum. Um, so it's not culturally specific, for example, and um, there aren't necessarily Egyptologists working on, on, on that material culture or those human remains. So um, as an adjective, I think it's still 
appropriate to use because a mummy mask, for example. Um, but and also, I guess the other move is to kind of rehumanise and get people to think about when we use the word mummy, it's a person that we're talking about. It's not um, an object. Mm. And I talked to Caroline about this um, in a little pre-chat that we had. And museums still put numbers, or I shouldn't say still, they still carry on from a tradition of numbering human remains. So you'll see written on the bandages, especially at the British Museum, which are big, bold writing on top, EA673, for example. Um, but when it comes to caring for First Nations human remains, for example, um, where there's a lot of work with contemporary communities, they would never, we would never do that. And um, also in terms of what information is shared about them, like there's just a whole different approach. So I guess it's coming back to looking at modern perspectives also looking at ancient perspectives and trying to find a, a balance somehow in, in as consultative way as possible. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it is about respect, mm. really. Another question, yes. Skewed by what, sorry? Infant mortality rates. Oh, yeah, and also what um, human remains have been available to study and because Historically, they were disregarded, often reburied, and even archaeologists were only interested in, you know, the flashy stuff, the blingy stuff. So there aren't that many data sets to actually work from, and it's now with CT scanning in museum collections in particular that we're building up that data set. But yeah, also you're right about the infant mortality skewing that, and, and just what we have available to us. So the question is, um, the people who were buried in the pits in the sand in the desert, what sort of view would they have had of the afterlife? Great question. So the only way to answer that is to see what the archaeology tells us. So from excavating these pits, um, we have found that there's no evidence of artificial mummification, but they're still naturally mummified. And that's how kind of the whole process of mummification came about, because just through the natural desert sands and the heat, um, the bodies are quite well preserved anyway, unless you go to somewhere like the Delta, which is quite marshy, because that's where the Nile splits into different branches. Um, so at the same time, we can see that there are certain um, practices that they've tried to maintain, whether it's the body facing towards the rising sun, or to, uh, sorry, towards the setting sun, because that's where the deceased passed after he died. Um, we'd find amulets sometimes placed inside the hand, a scarab beetle, for example, which also represented rebirth. Um, sometimes we'd find a, a little offering vessel, but um, most of these were robbed again in antiquity um, and turned upside down, so uh, the majority are just completely jumbled bones in pits. Um, it's probably less than about 5 to 10% that haven't been touched. So we can see they still had a belief in an afterlife, but they didn't have the means to express it. In the, like, there's no written material, for example. Oh, no, I take that back. There are some stelae that do exist from this site on some of the... Um, so they usually use cans or, or, or groups of stones to, to demarcate where the burial was, but in a few cases we find some stelae, but more the depiction of a god. And this is the other interesting thing, because during Akhenaten's time, he um, 
privilege the worship of the god Artan, but still at the ordinary levels of society, all the other gods are still being worshipped. And that's something that um, is often overlooked as well when we talk about the origins of monotheism. Um, and, and many people say it, it starts in ancient Egypt. And I guess there is some sense of that with the focus on the Artan, but these individuals were still studying, are uh, still, sorry, worshipping all the other gods in the pantheon that had been around for thousands of years before. I hope that you feel like me, that you've got a whole new perspective on everything that you're going to be looking at or have just seen in the exhibition. I just feel so reinvigorated in terms of <laughs> my curiosity and interest in uh, ancient Egypt. I can't, I can't thank you enough, Melanie, for your, your knowledge today. And you are coming back to talk about... Yeah, reuse and recycling in ancient Egypt on the 9th of January and then another one in February on um, ancient Egypt modern curatorship. So please join me in thanking Melanie Pitkin and come back when she's talking again. <laughs> this has been an Australian Museum podcast. 